You're not in this story. Yeah, well, we're making it up as we go. Hello and welcome to Making It Up As We Go, a Destiel fan fiction anthology podcast. We're making it up as we go. I'm your host and reader, Nerdy Nerdenstein. The story is ours now. We can't have it back. Please be warned that the stories featured can and will contain explicit sexual content and is not intended for young audiences. Hello. Today I'll be reading And This Your Living Kiss by Opal Bullets. Chapter 3. The rating for this fic is mature. The pertinent tags for this fic include... Poetry, writer Dean Winchester, Professor Castiel, John Winchester's A-plus parenting, mentions of past prostitution, mentions of cancer, angst with a happy ending. Chapter 3, Dr. Novak A couple days later, Dean found himself parking Baby in a closer parking lot and walking back toward Shirley Hall. The campus was just as sparse as last time, a distant group of kids laughing and talking as they crossed the opposite side of the quad. He climbed the hill with the old chapel and back down again, made the long trek to the front door of the English building, and returned to the third floor. This time, Missouri was standing at the other end of the hallway, talking to a man with dark hair and broad shoulders. They were a very nice set of shoulders, Dean couldn't help but notice, covered in a crisp white dress shirt, the fit slim down the lines of his back, leading to an equally nice ass and dark pants. The expression of a well-made man appears not only in his face. You linger to see his back and the back of his neck and shoulder side. When Missouri noticed Dean walking toward them, she smiled. Dean, she greeted. I'd like you to meet Dr. Castiel Novak. The man turned as she said it, and wow. Dean had been picturing some fusty old professor with a white beard and a tweed jacket and elbow patches. This guy was only a few years older than Dean himself, was almost his height, and was clean-shaven but for a bit of stubble which Dean probably liked a little too much. And his eyes, he had blue-blue eyes. Dean was very glad he'd worn a nice flannel today and made sure there were no holes in his jeans. Mr. Winchester, Dr. Novak said, holding out his hand as Dean walked up. It's a pleasure. Pleasure's mine. Dean answered, and what? 
He's pretty sure he's never said that before in his entire life. And, uh, just Dean. Novak smiled, and Dean really must have been staring at the stubble, because how the hell did he miss this guy's mouth? Then call me Castiel, or Cass, please. Yeah, sure, Cass. Was that something that happened in college? Students and professors on a first-name basis? On the other hand, it would probably be uncomfortable addressing someone so close to his age formally enough to warrant doctor. Unbidden, his brain filled with the image of Cass and Missouri passing each other in the hallway and nodding all Dr. Sexy style, saying, Doctor, Doctor. He choked down a hysterical giggle. You need me, I'll be in my office, said Missouri. Thank you, said Cass. Thanks, Missouri, Dean added. Mm-hmm. She waved over her shoulder and disappeared, closing her office door pointedly behind her. Well, shall we? Cass gestured to his office next door. Sure, said Dean and followed him in. Cass's office was smaller than Missouri's. As it wasn't in the corner, it only had two windows on the one outside wall. It was still really nice, with plenty of shelves taking up the rest of all possible wall space. They were filled with books, neatly organized, but there was a noticeable lack of personal items. There were a few plants and small pots scattered throughout the office, and a single orchid on his desk opposite from the computer. Next to the orchid's stem was a stick with a spring on the end, upon which perched a cartoonish bumblebee. Without thinking, Dean tapped the bee and watched it wiggle back and forth. From a friend, said Cass. Dean jerked his hand back, but the professor didn't seem angry. He was smiling fondly down at the bee, and there was something so disarming about seeing a grown-ass man turn sweet and gooey over something so silly. Dean sat down abruptly. He needed to nip this instant attraction shit right in the bud. One, because Dean was the absolute worst at forming coherent sentences around dudes he found attractive. He'd never really gotten the hang of it like he had with women. Two, if Dean was going to do this, be a student, then no matter what their ages were, Castiel was in a position of authority over him. More than that, he needed to be able to actually listen to what Cass had to say. A quick roll in the sack was not what he was here for, even if it had been longer than he'd like to admit. So, Cass started, sitting down behind his desk. Missouri tells me you're an old student of hers. She speaks very highly of you. Dean snorted. Yeah, that's me. When you aren't stoned for half of summer school, it's not hard to be one of the better students. Cass hummed. She warned me about you. No need to undersell yourself. I'm mostly looking to not oversell myself. You should know what you're getting into if you agree to teach me. All right, he said agreeably. Cass sat up straight in his chair and folded his hands on the desk. What am I getting into? He had his full attention on Dean, and it was a bit disconcerting. It was nothing like being under Missouri's appraisal, who made the swift judgments of a keen mind and a killer mom. Cass's face was open, guileless, and utterly focused. Uh. Dean felt pinned, couldn't look away. He cleared his throat. I've never taken a college class before. Never even graduated high school. 
Cass tilted his head in silent question. Have my GED, though. Okay, that's good. I don't foresee a problem thus far. I pretty much haven't written a paper since I was 17, so if you're going to want me to write those, you can't expect it to be genius A-plus quality, okay? Audit doesn't require letter grades. Would you like one? Dean barked a laugh. Hell no, definitely not. One corner of Cass's mouth quirked up. My only concern, then, is the subject matter. What, poetry? Think I can't read? Of course, Castiel, with his fancy name and his fancy doctorate, would think he couldn't handle reading a little poetry. His hands curled into fists behind the desk where Cass couldn't see. No, you misunderstand me, Dean, Cass said. I'm not worried about your ability to read or understand the poetry. But many of these students are planning to pursue English as their major, and at this point in their college careers use much of the specialized vocabulary for it. How confident are you when it comes to participating in discussions? Like what kind of vocabulary? Styles, forms, sonnet, sestina, terza rima. Some of that, sure. He's written in a few forms, but it was more about hearing the rhythm in his head than actually knowing whether academics had a name for it or not. How about poetic elements? Chiasmus, anaphora. Dean racked his brains, but those were not familiar at all. Shame crept up his throat, and he willed the blood from his face before it could color. Nah, it's, uh, all Greek to me. He flashed what he hoped was a convincingly devil-may-care smile. Cass laughed under his breath, his deep voice a rumble in his chest that reminded Dean of Baby. It is, in fact, Greek. Here. Cass pushed away from his desk, chair rolling across the hard wood, and opened the drawer of a small filing cabinet. I always have these on hand, he said, flipping through the files. Aha. Cass brought out a stapled packet of several pages and pushed it across the desk to Dean. It's a quick glossary of poetic terms. Thought my vocab quiz days were behind me, Dean muttered, scanning the first page. Apparently, anaphora was the repetition of a word or phrase at the beginning of lines or stanzas. A little unnecessary to have a separate word for a specific kind of repetition, if you asked him. I have no intention on quizzing you on it, Cass assured him. Just a suggestion, to help you feel on even footing with your classmates. I'll be honest, Dean, he continued. The use of his name had Dean looking up from the papers. I wouldn't normally let someone with no academic experience take a 300-level class, auditing or not. We aren't just going to be reading and reacting, but studying the craft of the poetry, pulling it apart piece by piece to see the why and how it elicits those reactions. It takes lots of practice and a solid foundation. Missouri assures me your foundation is sound. Cass paused there, clearly waiting for him to fill in the gaps. Dean was hardly going to tell him that his last collection had been shortlisted for the National Book Award. Or rather that he was Jack Allen, and Jack Allen had been shortlisted. Then again, he had no idea how Jack Allen played in academic circles. Could be considered a hack, for all he knew. Dean simply raised his eyebrows, dared the professor to finish his thought. They stared at each other, 
playing chicken for a moment longer. At length, Cass blinked and opened up an accordion folder lying on his desk. With Missouri's recommendation, I'm happy to have you in class. Even though you won't be receiving a grade, I still expect the same effort from you as I expect from my other students. He pulled out another smaller packet and gave that to Dean, too. I'll give you a copy of my syllabus as it stands now, just to give you an idea. You may miss no more than two classes. We meet Tuesday and Thursday afternoons for an hour and a half. You'll be expected to contribute to discussion at least once every class period. You will be writing at least one to two short explications for each poetic movement, depending on what the reading assignment is. There will be a paper at the end of each unit, which... He held up a finger when Dean opened his mouth to protest. You will also write. If I feel it is below a passing grade, you will meet with me one-on-one -on -one like any other student, after which you will have the option to rewrite the paper. Dean flipped through the syllabus, saw flashes of unit names, from Modernism and World War I all the way to the beginning of a new century. The papers, big and small, were listed among what looked like pages and pages of reading. It's a lot of work, he said. It is, Cass agreed. Dean looked up in surprise. In his experience, a teacher's response was always some form of suck it up and quit whining. Cass must have read something of that in his expression because he explained, The course is at a level that is considered rigorous. People don't generally take it if they have no interest in working on the subject. So ask yourself, Dean, what is it that you want to get out of this class? And are you willing to put the work in to get it? Dean wanted to fob off the question, tell him it was just because Missouri said so. But something about the way Castiel presented it so simply and honestly stopped Dean from being glib. I know how to work, he said at last. But why do you want to work so hard with me if I'm just auditing? Don't you have to worry about the real students? If you're in my class, you're my student. It seemed like a weird line to draw on the sand for a man that apparently knew 50 words for repetition, but what the hell? What the hell, he said. I'm in. Good. Cass held out his hand and Dean shook it bemusedly. You'll find my email address on the syllabus. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me. Otherwise, I'll see you again in two weeks. Cass's hand was warm. Dean very deliberately didn't let the shake linger. Sure. See you, Cass. But now it's time for me to go. Dean did not email Dr. Novak, Cass of the high cheekbones and deep, sexy voice. He did go to the registrar, however, and pay to audit the class. Kid behind the desk could have only been 19 at most, but she didn't bat an eyelash. Townie? she asked. Yep, he answered, since it was easiest. And that was that. Until he got home, of course. Over dinner, he tried to throw out the information as casually as possible. But of course, Sam flipped his shit. Eileen was giggling to see her husband so happy, and Jack eventually understood that Dean was going back to school. With me? He asked excitedly. 
No, said Sam gleefully. School for big kids. Oh, said Jack, the three-year-old completely oblivious to the murderous glare Dean had turned on his brother. With big trucks. Sure, kid, Dean sighed. When the two weeks were up, though, he was wishing he were back at the auto shop playing around with the big trucks. Dean was so close to backing out. Every encouraging thing Sam and Eileen said to him over breakfast, making him lose his appetite more and more. When they left for work, taking Jack with them, since he would be going to daycare on Dean's school days, he flopped onto the couch and turned on the TV, though he didn't watch it. A dozen times he woke up his phone, thumb hovering over Charlie's name and his contacts. But after what he'd said to her when he quit poetry, the hypocrisy of what he was doing now was too much to bear. He considered staying home all afternoon instead, because watching telenovelas and taking naps would probably be a better use of his time. What was Dean going to even do in a college class? Who the hell did he think he was? In the end, though, his practicality won out. He'd spent the money, and damned if he was going to waste it. Since the drive over to Maple Hills was probably going to be the best part of his day, he rummaged through his box of cassettes and popped Sepp's physical graffiti into the player. His commute was going to be about an album long each way, and that suited Dean just fine. When he arrived in town, it was several times as crowded as he remembered it. People were popping in and out of shops in the town center and taking selfies on the bridge over the little waterfall, and the sidewalks were full of pedestrians. College kids, most of whom didn't bother looking before crossing the fucking street. At least Baby got a few whistles of appreciation along the way. He was finally able to park his car, in the lot with the cheapest parking pass, holy shit. And he grit his teeth as he pulled his bag out of the car with him. He'd drawn the line at a backpack, so Sam had lent him one of his old messenger bags from law school. All it had in it was a notebook, a pencil, the poetics guide, and the syllabus Cass had given him. The campus was now as he had imagined it, full of students. The sidewalks were just as full here as they'd been in the town proper, but the grass was also teeming with kids sitting around, walking, laughing. He traversed the quad quick as he could, and then up the hill and around the chapel, and down again toward Shirley Hall. He felt prickling on the back of his neck. He didn't know if the kids really were looking at him for being so out of place, or if it was just paranoia. At least there were a few adults about, a couple that Dean noticed, professors presumably. Thankfully, he timed his arrival just right. Cass's poetry class was on the second floor of Shirley, and the door was wide open. The last class held there was long gone, and only a couple people had shown up for the next one. The afternoon August sun was blazing in through the tall windows that lined the far wall, so Dean aimed for the back corner behind the windows, half in shadow. He was ten minutes early, so he slung his bag to the floor, sunk into his chair, and settled in to wait. Though he kept his eyes mostly trained on the windows, he clocked everyone who came in. There were a dozen kids in all, mostly girls, but a handful of guys walked in too. A few were flying solo like him and dicking around on their phones as they waited, but most of the people were clearly well acquainted, chatting about so-and-so and the party this weekend, as far as Dean could tell. With a couple minutes to spare, Cass walked in, wearing black slacks and a nice blue button-down that brought out his eyes, even from Dean's distance. His dark hair was wild with that just-rolled-out-of-bed look, but the confidence he projected made it look stylish. Cass caught Dean's eye before he could look away, 
giving him a small smile before he set his own bag on the front desk. He smiled at the group of girls clustered front and center, said, Hello. Hi, Castiel, they said, and one of them tittered. Dean couldn't blame her. Not long after, the clock ticked to 3 p.m., and Dean had to suffer the indignity of roll call for the first time in about 15 years. The students all turned when he gruffly acknowledged his name, but he saw more curiosity than judgment, so that was something at least. Then, just as Cass was handing out the official syllabus, one kid walked into the room. He looked to be a lot shorter than Dean, but pretty tough with his short-cropped black hair and muscles shown off by his T-shirt. Ah, said Cass, you must be Kevin Tran. Yeah, sorry, Professor. Castiel is fine. Please find a seat. The kid did a quick assessment of the few empty desks, and to Dean's surprise, he settled on the one right next to him in the back row. It's nice to see everyone made it then, Cass continued, and in the mouth of any other teacher it would be snide, but somehow the guy just radiated sincerity, and Dean found himself taking him at his word. When he glanced at that Kevin kid beside him, he didn't seem to be taking any kind of offense either. I'm sure you've already gone through several syllabi in the last couple of days, acknowledged Cass, so I'll make this quick, but please listen up. As promised, he only did the highlights, just a little more involved than when he'd talked to Dean about it. He mostly let Cass's low, steady voice wash over him as the sunlight inched across the classroom wall. A half hour of the class was gone by the time Castiel had the students agree to read the syllabus more thoroughly as part of their homework, and then he bade them put everything away. We're going to talk, he said. He unbuttoned his cuffs and rolled up his sleeves one by one. There was nothing inherently teasing in the gesture. It was pretty perfunctory in the warm room. But Dean's eyes caught on his forearms, surprisingly strong-looking for an academic. He's pretty sure he heard a girl sigh. Honestly, Dean wouldn't be surprised if one of them had declared their love for Cass on their eyelids, Indiana Jones style. What do you think of when you think of poetry? Castiel asked the room. There was silence for a few seconds. The clock on the classroom wall ticked them off one by one. Rhyme? Someone ventured. Cass smiled. I think that's the place most of us go at first. What else? Shakespeare, another one offered. All the great poets, yes. What else? Paradise Lost. Nursery rhymes? Pretty language. There was a murmur of agreement across the class at that one. Good, said Castiel. All true. But what more? I think about why I like it, said Kevin Tran, confident and loud enough for everyone to hear him clearly. Ah. Cass pinned him with the full weight of his attention, which was considerable. And why do you like it? Because it means something to me. Castiel nodded. What does it mean to you? It... Kevin fiddled with his pen as he thought. It expresses emotions and truths in a way that you can understand them, on a gut level, not an intellectual one, you know? God, that was it. That was it. Dean looked at Kevin with new respect. Thank you, Kevin. Has anyone else experienced this when reading poetry? Dean felt that residual middle school feeling of desperately not wanting to be the odd one out, 
as he'd always been when they'd moved around. But swift on its heels was the realization that he was too old for that shit. And he was in the back of the room anyway, where only Kevin and Castiel could see him. He raised his hand, just enough to be noticed. Only a few other people did. Cass let his eyes flit to each of the students to assess the reaction. He gave Dean a fleeting smile. Or maybe he imagined it. There is no right or wrong relationship to poetry, Castiel said, his voice settling back into lecture mode. But everyone must reckon with it in some way or another. It's not just a subject for boring academics like me. Nor is it, as some say, only the purview of angsty teens who have no taste. A chuckle swept through the class, Dean joining in a little ruefully. No shit, he'd been an angsty as fuck teen when he started writing poetry. I want you all to do me a favor. Think of all the oldest literature you can, the oldest of the old, of any culture, then shout it out. The Bible, someone said immediately. Good, and... The Iliad. Beowulf. Gilgamesh. Cass held up his hand to stop the barrage. All good examples. What do they have in common? Their poetry, Dean said, shocked into sharing the answer. Seriously, how had he gone through eleven and a half years of school and never frickin' noticed that? He wasn't even aware he'd said it loud enough for Castiel to hear until the professor responded. Exactly. Can anyone venture a guess as to why? Dean pressed his lips shut, not that the answer was on the tip of his tongue this time. Thankfully, a girl spoke up pretty quickly. They come from oral tradition. It was easier to remember long stories if they followed rhyme or meter. Wonderful Billy, yes, and some cultures still keep that tradition alive, though it is mostly lost in our society today. But it is not gone. I want you all to think back with me to the beginning of life on this earth, of the fish wriggling onto the sand, and the tiny mammal growing and growing, of noises becoming speech, of meals becoming a time of community and society, of sitting around the bonfire and telling stories. Much of the earliest writing found by archaeologists is about commerce, but that is ignoring intangible art and the visual arts. Cave paintings and statue fragments tell us how the earliest people saw the world. But before even that, humans were weaving poetry with their words, sharing their history, their imagination, their dreams. But at its essence, poetry is the lifeblood of the human spirit, the quickening of its soul. It is writ as deeply in our DNA as the length of our bones, the color of our eyes. We turn to it, either spoken or through song, when we feel the most. At weddings and funerals, communing with our gods, driving in a car, singing Bohemian Rhapsody with our friends. The class laughed. And yes, when our bodies suffer the turmoil of adolescence. We give each other greeting cards with neat words to express gratitude, sympathy, and congratulations. And, when we can't find the words ourselves... We turn to the great poets among us, past and present, and we know our pain is shared and thereby lessened. We are all poets, Castiel continued after a brief pause. But there are some who answer when they hear the call, and answer, and answer. 
We'll be studying a fraction of this unique group over the course of the semester. But as we go through and break down their work to discover what they have to teach us, I don't want any of you to forget that our arguments should be more than academic. Poetry might not have the practical implications of, say, chemistry at first glance. But I beg of you to consider, has it not also enriched lives, even saved them? Dean at last looked away from Castiel, unable, unwilling to take the chance that any vulnerability show. Because that was the crux of it, wasn't it? Why Dean couldn't eradicate poetry from himself completely. That it had saved him and changed him utterly. Your homework for tonight, Cass said, switching gears, besides the syllabus, is to pick a poem that means something to you. And I mean specifically to you. We'll go easy for the first time and only have you write a half a page talking about why it's important to you. Not literature, not history, not culture, to you. Then we'll share them aloud. That's all for today, then. See you Thursday. Kevin was up and gone almost immediately, the others not far behind. But Dean trailed behind the last of the other students, mind churning with everything Castiel had said. To him, poetry was sitting in a dingy room and scribbling on paper. But Cass had made it seem... cosmic. Dean... He startled and whipped around halfway out the door, only to find that he and Castiel were the last people in the room. Dean had immediately clocked that Cass was handsome, but now, after that lesson, with the sun shining straight through the window at his back and wrapping him in its rays like a mandorla, his looks had transformed into some kind of unearthly beauty. Cass was so far out of his league that he was on another plane of existence, and somehow it calmed Dean drew him back from the precipice of his crush. Cass was intimidating as hell, but that Dean could deal with. I'm glad you came, Cass said. Yeah, Dean nodded, surprised he meant it. Me too. Over the next two days, Dean angsted over what poem to pick. Sure, Howell had really gotten Dean into poetry, but that was a common one to talk about, right? He should pick something that no one else is going to pick. There was Death Be Not Proud, the one he riffed off of when he was actually writing his first poem, but he sure as hell wasn't going to tell a room of 20-year-olds and some hotshot professor that he sometimes suffered from delusions of being a writer. You must really want to impress this guy, said Sam. He was going over some papers for work, but doing it on the floor so Jack could try braiding his hair. Dean scoffed at this completely erroneous assumption. It's not about impressing him, Sam. It's about letting him know Missouri didn't stick out her neck for me for no reason. You could bring one of your poems. Shut up. Shut up. Echoed Jack. What should we remember about shut up, Jack? Asked Sam, long-suffering. Not at school, the kid answered dutifully. Dean winced in sympathy as Jack enthusiastically tugged on Sam's hair, 
which his brother took with only half a grimace and not a sound. How about the poetry you listen to every day? I'd say that's you all over, Sam said, not looking up from his papers. The hell are you talking about? Oh, so your favorite song isn't Ramble On? That's a song, not a poem. Sam gave him an unimpressed look, which in and of itself was unimpressive, given he had several elastic bands in his hair and at least three of Eileen's scrunchies. Nevertheless, it was eloquent. Yeah, yeah. Guess no one else is going to choose a song. Dean sighed. No time for spreading. The time has come to be gone. And though I held we drank a thousand times, it's time to ramble on. On Thursday, Dean came in with his sheet of lyrics and a small paragraph on why he enjoyed the words. He had steered away from a lot of the emotional stuff, traveling around the country with his dad and Sam, Charlie introducing him to all things Tolkien, his mother's old record collection. He found himself profoundly regretting his decision, cursing Sam to hell and back in his head, when Castiel announced they were all going to take turns reading their chosen poem aloud and talking about it as a group. They were forced to move their desks into a circle. My God, were they in second grade? And went clockwise around the room. Castiel was sitting at the head of the circle. They started to his left and then slowly, excruciatingly worked their way around to Dean, who with his back desk was at the foot of the circle, directly across from the professor. Dean cleared his throat. I chose a song. He looked up at Cass, and when he made no protest, Dean continued. It loses something without the music, but here it is. Leaves are falling all around. It's time I was on my way. He read the lyrics as confidently as he could, awkwardly skipping over the repeats of the refrain. The class did not seem very enthused. Gollum? asked one of the girls, April. Isn't that the creepy thing from the Lord of the Rings movies? Uh, yes, said Dean. That's the thing about pop songs these days, she said. Too many pop references. Did she seriously not know anything about Led Zeppelin? It's a rock song from the 60s. Was the book even out then? Another kid asked. Kevin rolled his eyes and thanked fuck because then Dean didn't have to. Obviously. Well, I think it shows a lack of maturity, said April. They're writing about fairy stories. What about real life? Dean sat there stunned while the discussion devolved into debate about what constitutes real literature and whether poets should be concerned about writing pop poetry as opposed to real poetry that referenced real literature. He wished Charlie were here so she could be suitably outraged and then remembered that he hadn't told her about trying out the class because he was too chicken shit. Stupid. Eventually, Castiel steered the conversation to the next person, who had chosen some Sylvia Plath, but his guilt and embarrassment carried him through the rest of the class. He grabbed the large packet of the poems Cass had selected for the early 20th century and shoved it into his bag without bothering to look at it. This time, when class was over, he made sure not to be caught by his professor before leaving. The walk across campus to get back to the Impala was still just as awkward as last Tuesday. However, he adapted the strategy of the students and cut across the green instead of skirting the edges using the sidewalk. 
The green was dotted with Adirondack chairs painted in solid colors, mostly red or white. Many were unoccupied, given that people were headed elsewhere after their classes had let out, but Dean was surprised to walk by one occupied by Kevin. His backpack was slumped on the ground next to his chair, but the packet of poems was in his lap. As Dean neared, Kevin rubbed his face, bumping his sunglasses, then let himself fall ungracefully against the back of the chair. It looked a little too much like he'd been wiping away tears for Dean to continue on in good conscience. He stopped walking, but Kevin didn't acknowledge him. Maybe his eyes were closed behind the glasses? Hey, uh, Kevin? No response. What was Kevin's last name again? Dean eyed his Star Wars shirt, which had Han splashed across the front. Good taste. Kevin Solo, he tried. You okay? Slowly, Kevin lifted his sunglasses so Dean could get the full effect of his glare. Sure enough, they were red and puffy. What's it to you? Dean shrugged and perched on the edge of the empty chair next to him. What, I catch some kid having a hard time? I'm supposed to ignore it? Kid? Kevin scoffed. How old do you think I am? To be honest, Dean admitted, once I hit 30, everyone younger than me looks kind of the same. I'm 25. Cool. And they both watched as a girl chased around a boy who was holding something of hers in the air while their friends laughed. Uh, what's your story? What's yours? Kevin shot back. Nothing to see here, said Dean, giving himself a half grin. Just some guy with a GED dipping his toe back in the academic pool while he's got the chance. Oh yeah, said Kevin. Sounds nice. Though he didn't sound particularly enthused. Dean nodded at the packet still sitting on his lap. That for poetry class? At this, his face lost some of the haughty veneer. Kevin lifted the packet to look at the page it was open to, then dropped it back down, closing his eyes. Yeah, you look at it yet? Nope. Are they that bad? Kevin laughed under his breath, harshly with an edge. They're that good. Without looking, he snatched up the packet and slammed it against Dean's arm. You heard of this guy? He asked. Dean plucked the papers from his hand and scanned the page. The header read, Yon no Gucci, 1875-1947. Looked Japanese by the name, but he couldn't recall Bobby ever talking about him. Then again, this class was about English language poetry, right? So he wouldn't have been writing in Japanese. Never heard of him, said Dean. Neither have I. Dean didn't know what to say to that. His silence at last prompted Kevin to open his eyes again. He sat up in the chair to snatch the packet back. He read the page again himself, shaking his head. You know, I went to pretty good schools. Was in advanced placement in high school. Had imagism shoved down my throat more than once. Uh, imagism? You know, early shit from Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot and whatever. Okay, sure. But this guy? Kevin waved the packet around. The bio Novak wrote up about him. Born in Japan, but immigrated to America. Was a huge influence not only by publishing his own poetry, but by discussing Japanese literary aesthetics with Brits and other Americans. Like, imagism might never have happened without him. He's the first really important Asian-American poet, and I was in advanced placement. I spent two years at Harvard. And have I ever heard of him before? No. 
He angrily dropped the poems on top of his bag and thumped back into a sprawl on the chair, but a couple of tears escaped. With a jerky movement, he wiped them away and crossed his arms. It does sound like a good thing, then, said Dean quietly. Yeah, said Kevin, subdued. He sniffled. I'm just relieved, I guess. About what? That I made the right choice to come back to school? He shrugged. That's my story. I worked so hard I burned myself out and had a mental breakdown. Yikes, said Dean. Sorry. I'm over it. Mostly. He lolled his head along the chair to face Dean more fully. Picked a smaller, less prestigious school, but compromised with my mother and still picked a good one. Would maybe have preferred something a little closer to home, but whatever. I know now I might actually learn something worthwhile here. Yeah, that's... that's what I hope, too. The post-class rush was gone and the green was mostly clear, though there looked to be a couple of people sunbathing in the chairs some fifty feet away. Dean adjusted the bag on his shoulder and cleared his throat. Kevin had flipped his sunglasses back down over his face again. Where's home? he asked. Kevin smiled. Michigan. You? Kansas. Well, by way of South Dakota. Nice, Kevin said, drawing out the word. You have no idea how much of a minority Midwesterners are on this campus. You get a smattering of students from the big population states like Texas and California. Definitely a lot of people from New York City, but around here? He snorted. They're mostly from just outside of Boston. Okay, said Dean. Does that mean something? This time, Kevin ticked his sunglasses down and gave him a significant look over the top of him. It means they're from really fucking rich New England suburbs. Don't let them get to you, he added, flicking the glasses back up and resettling in the chair. They were pretty harsh on you today, about making bad references and pontificating about what they think is real literature. In case you weren't clear, it's atmospheric stories about lobster fishermen in Maine who have estranged relationships with their children as a metaphor for the emptiness of the American dream. He snickered. Maybe they're right, said Dean, thinking of his own poetry, so heavily influenced by bands like Led Zeppelin, and riffing a lot off of other poems, though he always tried to make them his own. He could at least rest easy that his poetry would never appear in one of Castiel Novak's packets. It probably shows a lack of creativity or originality or something. The fuck it does, dismissed Kevin easily. That attitude's just a holdover from when Harold Bloom was talking about the anxiety of influence that poets suffer, striving to create original pieces above all else, but unable to escape the horror that they're too influenced by what came before. Never heard of him either, said Dean. He was beginning to see what Cass was talking about when he worried that Dean wouldn't be up to snuff in the things higher-level students would inevitably talk about in discussion. But Kevin didn't seem to care. This is actually refreshing, he said. Don't worry about it. It's not a modern argument. Jonathan Lethem, though? Him you should look up. Go online and look for his ecstasy of influence. Then maybe the next time someone's an asshole about poetical illusions, you'll consider a counterattack. At that moment, Dean's phone buzzed. He dug it out from his pocket and saw that Eileen had sent him a photo of Jack putting a bunch of dinosaurs all over a toy fire truck. He says the truck had to go to the shop. 
Apparently dinosaurs work there, too. Like Uncle Dean, he says. Dean was overcome with a wave of warmth for his little nephew. He didn't know why the idea of his being important enough in Jack's life that he'd entered into his play stories like his mama and daddy was so significant to him. But it sure meant something. It reminded him, too, that if he didn't start driving back now, he'd be late for dinner. It was kind of amazing he now had dinners in his life that he could be late for. He glanced over at Kevin, who looked relaxed, arms folded behind his head. Thanks, Kevin, he said, standing. See you Tuesday. Kevin waved, and Dean headed off. For the drive home, he put Zepp 2 in the tape deck. For the next few classes, they focused on a different poetic movement from the early 20th century. There was World War I, realism and naturalism, imagism, Harlem Renaissance, modernism. There were some poets he vaguely remembered from high school, like Wilfred Owen, and others he'd picked up from libraries or used bookstores over the years, or were gifted to him by Charlie or Missouri. But most of them, like Noguchi, were poets he'd never read. And he was reading like never before, too. Partially, this was because Cass liked to neatly split the elements of a poem into separate categories, which he made them recite whenever they took a deep dive into a particular piece. Typographical, sonic, sensory, ideational, and, putting them all together, fusional. It was also because of Cass's insistence that poetry must be read out loud. He took turns calling on people to take up the torch and bravely sputter out the verse from their packets or the projector screen. For so long, Dean had thought his propensity to mutter the words as he read or wrote poems to help him get a better feel for it was because he was kind of dumb. Cass declared it was essential. And honestly, hearing Cass read the poems instead of the kids was the best of all. He infused them with an ease, a conversational quality that nevertheless didn't lose the rhyme or rhythm the poet had crafted. But mostly, Dean was reading and looking at poetry differently because of the way Cass talked about everything surrounding it. The way he painted a picture of the society of the time. In the different countries, the wars and the politics, the madhouses and the rich estates, the poet's personal struggles and triumphs. And no matter how interesting it was, sometimes Dean heard nothing but the cadence of his voice, saw nothing but the shine of passion in his eyes, and the adorable way his tie sometimes came loose and hung backwards down his chest. Or the gorgeous days when he didn't wear a tie, and left the top couple buttons of his shirt undone in the warmth of early fall. Dean caught himself dreaming then, just a little bit. It was nice, in a way, having something— someone to dream about. 
Maybe Dean was a little hot for teacher, but that was all right, with the whole classroom between them. It made it a little easier to bear when the class did eventually come around to the discussion of modernism, and the same students who had insulted Led Zeppelin for referencing Tolkien were singing the praises of poems that required fluency in five languages in the goddamn Encyclopedia Britannica to understand. Because it was so original and it wasn't derivative. And when Eliot wrote, I will show you fear in a handful of dust, Lydia was saying, that's one of the greatest lines ever written in the English language. It's a good line, but what about Tennyson? asked Dean, unable to keep quiet any longer. He'd read Lethem's essay, as Kevin had suggested, and he dearly wished he could ask his classmates to do the same. The man had crafted the entire damn thing using other people's words, had called it a plagiarism himself, but in the process had created something entirely new and defended the process all the while. My heart is a handful of dust. Coincidence, scoffed Todd. What? He can quote half an Eastern religion, but he's not quoting Tennyson? Do you think? Cass interjected, as he often did when it looked like tensions were going to run too high. That makes the poem less original if he is. Dean tried to read his intention, but Cass had a frustratingly good poker face when he wanted to. He corrected facts when they came up, but rarely stated his opinion. Just stood there, leaning back with his hands on the front desk, legs in front of him and crossed at the ankle. Hot, but cold. On days like this, on days like the second class, when the students walked all over Ramble On, it kind of pissed Dean off. He didn't have any idea where he stood with him in the class. No, he bit out. But I think maybe we should think about it the other way around. I'm not sure what you mean, said Cass. Great, good sign. Dean plowed on anyway, in for a penny. In the end, the way his poetry works, isn't it more original because of all the quotes and allusions? Another student jumped on the idea immediately, not discussing or considering, just dismissing it out of hand and moving on. Kevin gave a short sigh behind him, but Cass cocked his head, studying Dean for a moment or two before blinking and looking at the current speaker. Now what was that about? Thank you. 
has come to be gone And though I held sweet drink a thousand times It's time to ramble on Thank you so much for your support. I can be contacted on Twitter, Tumblr, or at makingitupaswegopod at gmail.com. If you are able, please go to the author's AO3 story and give comments and kudos to them for sharing this with us. The link is in the show notes. This will also be posted on AO3 as a podfic under my username, and the link will be in the show notes as well. As always, thank you so much for listening.